in your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel, chapter number 5. And while you're turning there, let me make a few remarks. As a pastor, every week I have to, like any preacher, I have to decide what to preach. And notice I said what I should preach, not what I desire to preach. Because I'm not at liberty to just preach whatever I desire or whatever I decide. It's my duty as a messenger to discern what God desires for me to preach and then to deliver the message as simply and sincerely as I possibly can. That's not always as easy as most people think it is because there's a lot of times things going on in your life or things you know, bouncing around in your head, and it's sometimes very difficult to uh, to know just exactly what you, God wants you to say. And sometimes the the subject comes to you just, I mean, in a heartbeat. Uh, it might be tomorrow morning. I'll know in a matter of a few minutes exactly what I'm going to preach next Sunday morning. Other times, other times it takes me right up to the last minute and. Uh, I just want to be sure that I say what God wants me to say and that I don't say more than He wants me to say. And I'm saying all of this for a reason. I'm not just filling in space here. Sometimes I can clearly see the reason for God putting a particular message on my heart. And at other times I don't have a clue. It doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever doesn't seem to be like anything that I know of that the church needs. So sometimes I know in advance, and I can sort of tell maybe why, but sometimes I don't know to the last minute, and I don't have a clue as to the reason why. But over the years, I've come to understand that the reason and the results all belong to God. That's not for me to know. It's not for me to decide. God tells me to preach it, not preach it and bless it. I can't bless it. I can't make something happen. And so I don't need to know the reason, and I don't need to worry about the results, because that's all up to God. But since we've been studying the book of Proverbs on Wednesday, on Wednesday evening, and you'll remember I've said over and over that Proverbs shows a contrast between wisdom and folly. So based on that, I can, I can kind of see why God might want me to bring this message this morning because the title of it is A Fool's Folly. And you could give it a subtitle, The Message for the, for the Messes of the Masses. Because uh, let me tell you, our society is in a mess and it needs a message. If there's any one word that describes the condition of our nation today, the attitude of the people, uh, it's the word foolish. And as Christians, we need to learn to walk worthy of the Lord, the opposite of what most people is doing. Now, before we begin reading here in Daniel chapter number 5, I want to make mention of a verse found over in the book of Proverbs chapter 14 and verse number 9. You don't need to turn there. It's a very brief statement, but it's something that you might want to remember. Solomon said, fools make a mock at sin. Fools make a mock 
at sin. You've heard it over and over again. A picture is worth a thousand words. And there's a lot of truth to that. And so this morning, I want to give you a picture of what Solomon was talking about. Fools make a mock at sin. And one of the best examples I know is found right here in Daniel chapter number 5. And I want you to notice it begins with a feast here in the first four verses. Belshazzar, the king that is the king of Babylon, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. And Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. And they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple to the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines drank in them. So, here we see a picture of a feast. And the king, and notice 1,000 of his of his lords and their wives, along with his wives and his concubines and so forth, have all gathered together. It is a time of fun and frolic. It is characterized, for one thing, by their drunkenness. But not only that, there's something even worse than that, and that's the desecration of holy things. The holy vessels that had been dedicated to God Himself whenever they overrun the temple and they stripped the temple of all of the valuables out of it and they took the silver and gold vessels and now they're taking those things that were intended to be used in ministry to God and they're using those things to satisfy their flesh. The desecration of holy things which shows a disregard for God. And that last statement sums up the problem entirely. Whether you're talking about the desecration of the holy things or their drunkenness or whatever it is, it all boils down in its very essence to a disregard for God. I mentioned a while ago growing up in Springfield, while I was there, I got to know several of the professors at Baptist Bible College very well and become close friends with several of them and uh, had some of them to preach for me on several occasions over the years. And some of the most brilliant men that I've ever known were professors there at that time, men like Noel Smith, J.H. Melton, and different ones. And I'll never forget a description, and I'm not sure the source of this or anything, but but he was describing describing the feast that was taking place. And here's what he wrote. A special dining room was erected, which was approximately one mile long and a quarter of a mile wide. The walls were supported by 25-foot high stone elephants every 14 feet. And on the back of each elephant stood a huge gladiator with outstretched arms. Huge bronze chains were stretched across the dining room to the corresponding gladiators. And on these bronze chains, a trellis was formed by wire which was covered with asphalt and dirt. Vines, shrubs, and flyers were planted on the roof 
which formed the hanging gardens. That was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, of course. And then he goes on and says, The inside of the ceiling was as a huge basket of flyers whose fragrance filled the air. Each lord and his wife sat at separate horseshoe dining tables and were served by personal waiters who delivered their food on golden wagons drawn by 25 trained peacocks harnessed in silver and gold. Opposite the king's table, in the center of the dining room, high upon the wall, was a white plaster slab with a platform under it. When someone wanted to drink a toast, They climbed the spiral staircase and wrote on the slab with black chalk. When the toast was written, a trumpet sounded announcing the toast, and cups were filled with wine, and they danced and drank to the sound of a 32,000-piece orchestra. Now, I can't prove, in fact, any time I read something out of a history book, I... I can't prove that it's true. The only time I can say with absolute certainty what I'm saying is 100% true is when I'm reading the Bible. But most certainly, and I've done some research since then, this is not out of line with what historians tell us. I mean, this was something that was on a, on such a grand scale that, you know, Donald Trump couldn't even match something like this. I mean, it was out of sight. And they, so here they are feasting in a drunken stupor, uh, all fun, all frolic, and, and just sort of a reminder of where man's heart is without God. And that's what we see in the world today. I mean, even this very day, all across the nation. Now listen, I'm not against football. I'm not against sports whatsoever. But I'll tell you, when we make gods out of the athletes and out of the entertainers and what have you, we've got a serious problem. And all across America, there will be stadiums, as yesterday on the college front, stadiums holding up to a 100,000 people, one after another, after another, after another, and, and people showing no regard whatsoever for God and His house, and yet their focus is all on fun and frolic. So this is the picture that we see, a picture very much like today. Now notice in verse 5, we see something happen that created a fearful situation. Verse 5 And the same hour there came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. In other words, as we'd say back in Missouri, his knees are a-knocking. He's scared, he's scared spitless. I mean, he doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, you know, here the party's going on and there, it, it, there's the appearance of a hand up there, you know, floating around and that hand is writing something upon the wall. And so all of this is self-explanatory. All of a sudden, the party goes from gaiety to gloom. The king knows there's something supernatural taking place, but he doesn't have any idea what it's all about. He has no idea what this means. And so in this, we see a description of the natural man and his blindness 
And, and that's what Paul told us in Second Corinthians in chapter 2, remember? He said, the natural man receiveth not the things of God, and neither can he understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. The natural, that is the unsaved person, doesn't have a clue when it comes to, uh, to the knowledge of spiritual things. Why? Because the Bible says the God of this world has blinded their minds lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them. Now, we need to remember that because there's a lot of folks turning to the world for answers to important questions, and I'm telling you, you won't find the answer there. We see that's exactly what the king does. He sees there's something supernatural taking place. It's got his attention, but he has no idea what the meaning of all of this is. So look at verse 7, and here we see his folly. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, I'll tell you, he's getting serious now. He don't know what's going on, but he knows or feels that he needs an answer. And so he calls in the astrologers and all of his so-called wise men that he has depended upon. So he's making the same mistake that most people make in that they turn to the worldly wise to get the answer. Well, naturally they failed, just like the world fails us today. You're not going to find the answer to your problems, the solution to your needs, and things of that nature in the world. It's just not there. And so here we see, all of a sudden, he has picked the brain of all of these so-called wise men and, and, and offered them great reward. In fact, they could even be third in line of the rulers in the kingdom. So this is not a small matter, and you better believe if they could, they would. They would have solved this puzzle, but they can't. They can't because their mind is blinded just as much as the king himself. There are so many times we think to ourselves, I don't understand why people do what they do, because it defies reason. I mean, you just look at the average person on the street and the way that they live and the things that they do and how foolish it it, it is. And, And you would think to yourself, you know, any fifth grader ought to be able to sit down and figure this out. That, that the, the, the course they're taking is not a wise course of action. And yet they plunge right headlong into a life of sin and they wreck and ruin their life and they hurt others. And, and it's simply because they're depending upon their own reasoning or living according to their own feelings rather than the Word of God. And it's the same mistake that, uh, that the king is making in this case. He's depending on all of these people. Well, fortunately, we see here amid all of this folly that Daniel enters into the picture. It so happens that the queen had heard about Daniel. She had heard how that he was, well, uh, a, a man that was 
head and shoulders above all of the rest of the so-called wise men. And he goes on and describes Daniel down through here, and we're not going to read all of these verses, but she is conversing with the king saying, you need to check it out with this guy. He's got answers that nobody else does. And so all of a sudden, Daniel comes in into the picture. And the first thing he does, if you read from verse 10 down through verse 24, the first thing he does is to remind the king that he hasn't learned anything as a result of history. In other words, he reminds him of his daddy's failure, Nebuchadnezzar. You know that story, don't you? The story of Nebuchadnezzar, you know, that was mighty in power. He's a man that was ruling the world as it were, a man who had great riches, a man who set himself up as his own God. And even when confronted with the challenge of God, so who's God that I ought to obey him? I'm God. I'm running this show. And yet God brought him down to a state of nothingness. He lost his mind. He lived out in the field and ate grass like a wild animal and slept out there. Now remember, this is a fella that owns the palace. I mean, he has silver and gold and the finest food that is available to mankind. And there he is sleeping outside in the field at night like an animal with the dew falling upon him and eating grass out of his mind. And finally, in that desperate situation, he turned to God. One of the most amazing stories in the Bible that most people don't even know anything about. How that Nebuchadnezzar turned to God and confessed that God rules in the kingdom of men. God's the one running the show. God's the one in charge. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar woke up to that fact. And it's as though Daniel is standing there pointing his finger in Belshazzar's face saying, You haven't learned a thing. Just think about your daddy. Think about what he went through. Think about what happened to him. And look at what you're doing. You're turning right around repeating the same mistake that he made. Now you see the old king sitting there. With a false sense of security, Babylon was built along the river Euphrates. It was surrounded by a mile that, uh, by a wall that was 60 miles long. It was 700 feet thick at the bottom and went up to the top where it was 300 feet thick, the length of a football field. And then on top of that, on the outside, there was another wall out there that, that was separated from the the big wall by 50 foot, a moat of water, and that wall was 200 feet high and patrolled day and night with soldiers. And every 14 feet, historians tell us that there was a pot of molten lead just waiting to be poured down on their attackers. And so inside this city, surrounded by these walls, they had a 20-year supply of food And they're thinking to themselves, nobody can bring us down. Nobody can get to us. We are in the safest place on earth. But let me tell you something. There are no safe places places when God becomes your enemy. When God turns against you as a result of your rebellion, God's going to find you. 
Amen. There's no safe place, nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. And that's where they're at. And Daniel is now explaining the foolishness of the king to himself, letting him know you're making the same mistake your daddy did. It's so heartbreaking to see people still doing that today. You can look back in their family history. And it's amazing to me how many people that become alcoholics and, and, you know, they like to blame their, their daddy. My, you know, my daddy was a drunk, and so, I, so I'm a drunk. Well, that, look, you don't have to be what your daddy was. Amen? You don't have to have a bad temper just because you're Irish. You, you, look, you don't have any excuse for your manner of life. But so many people make exactly the same mistake. I think back to when I was a boy, and my daddy didn't drink, but my grandpa come in from World War One. He'd been gassed in the war, and he had a drinking problem. In fact, they had to keep him in the VA hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. And all during the time I was growing up, I can remember only one time that he got out, and we brought him home. And I was just a little fellow back then, and brought him home. And I remember, the, I remember my uncle going down, getting him down to jail. He got out. He had got drunk. And uh, back before even he had gone to the war, I heard the stories of him chasing Grandma with a butcher knife in his drunken stupors and stuff like that. And uh, I thought to myself, as they took him back there to the hospital, I thought to myself, well, I don't ever want to be like Grandpa. By the time I was 17 or 18 years old, my senior year in high school until the time I was saved, I become almost the same man that my granddaddy was. I didn't learn a thing from that. And, and, and let me tell you, without, without the Lord, what you're going to do is turn right around and repeat the same stupid things that people have been doing for centuries. It goes all the way back to Adam. And we just keep, we just keep doing that over and over and over again until, and only until, we become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And so here we see the feast and the fear and the folly. Now look at verse 25, and we see the fate. He brings Daniel in, and remember, he's offered this great reward, and Daniel told him, no, you just keep the reward for yourself. I don't want any of it, but I'm going to tell you what God is saying. Look at verse 25. And this is the writing that was written. Many, many tinkle you farson. And this is the interpretation of the thing. Many, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tinkle thou art found weighed in the balance and art found wanting. Peris, which is the singular form of the word Eupharsin. Peris, he says, the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then commanded Belshazzar that they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night, not a month later, but in that night, was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius and Midian took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Now, I want you to notice four things about their fate. First of all, the prophecy was sent by Daniel. Remember who Daniel is. Daniel was God's messenger. And notice Daniel did not try to soften the impact 
He did not say the outcome is debatable. He didn't, you know, he didn't try to, you know, to pull any punches. He, he just told it to the king like it was. You, you know, that's what the world needs to hear. They need to hear the truth, not some watered-down version of it. And so Daniel just, I mean, with both feet on the floor and his shoulders back and his head high, said, this is what God's telling you. And we need to understand that the answer to our problems, the solution to our needs, is going to come from the Word of God, not from what the world has to say. So the prophecy is sent by Daniel, but notice, secondly, the plight is sure. When God says something is going to happen, you can bank on it, because God doesn't make any idle threats. Now, some people have been thinking, well, you know, I'm going to be the exception to that rule. You know, I, I can push the envelope. I can, you know, I can, I can go so far and I'll stop there. But there are no exceptions. When you start playing with sin, you're going to end up getting hurt. And, and to think to yourself, you know, well, I, I can go this far and, and, uh, and I won't go any further. You're, you're just kidding yourself. You cannot escape when it reaches that point that we have so violated God's law, so dishonored God, that God just says judgment is coming. It is a sure thing. God can't lie. But notice that their punishment was sudden. Verse 30, notice he says, that night. And what happened is that the Medes and the Persians, that very night, diverted the water of the Euphrates back into the old channel, and they came in under the water gate and took the city. So the point is, you might not have as much time as you think you do. There's a lot of people that would confess, you know, preacher, I know that I'm not living right. I know that what I'm doing is not pleasing to God. But one of these days I'm going to change. One of these days I'm going to straighten up. One of these days I'm going to start living right. You might not have as much time as you think. The wages of sin is death. And God could take your life this very day. You think about Ananias and Sapphira, and, and, and they lied to God. And, and I mean, right there on the spot. It wasn't a month later or a year later. Right there on the spot, they lost their life. And I'm trying to get you to see that the plight is sure when you set yourself against God and the punishment might be sudden. But notice, this picture is often shared by that. I mean, this is a common thing. This is what people even today continue to do. Multitudes living in sin with no regard for God whatsoever. They've been warned, maybe by mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. Maybe the preacher, the Sunday school teacher, a good dear friend of theirs, has tried to warn them. And uh, in various ways, they just keep ignoring God. And, And look, eventually that's going to catch up with you. Be sure your sin will find you out, the Bible says. Now, I can't help but wonder what... You might have been thinking, had you been there at that feast at that time, and that hand just magically appear and start writing upon the wall, wouldn't it be something if right here in this service all of a sudden there was a hand that appeared and 
and the heading of it had, had your name. And then it started writing God's indictment against you. I can't help but wonder, would we be embarrassed if God just opened the closet door and let all of the skeletons out? Would not we be afraid if there was an indictment written against us that God's going to destroy us and our family? I mean, look, we're not talking about just the death of the king. We're talking about the kingdom itself falling. The Medes and the Persians overthrew it. They took over. We need to stop and think about what we risk losing when we set ourselves against God. Now, I'm not really expecting some hand to appear and to start writing on the wall, but I am telling you that God still speaks today. God speaks, for one thing, through the Scriptures. Are you listening? He speaks through the Scriptures. It might have been in Sunday school when your teacher read a particular verse and the Spirit of God just took that like, a, like an arrow and smote your heart and convicted you of sin. We need to get serious about this matter of listening to the Word of God And I've often said what the Bible says is far more important than what I say about it. And just the mere reading of God's Word ought to get our attention. It's God speaking to us, and we need to listen. But secondly, God not only speaks to us through the Scripture, God speaks to us by the Spirit. And, of course, the Spirit, the the sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. Well, we wouldn't understand anything of what the Bible's all about were it not for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that opens our eyes and enlightens our mind. We need to be looking to Him and learning from Him and depending upon Him to be our teacher as we open the Word of God. But God not only speaks to us through the Scripture and by the Spirit, God speaks to us through situations. By that I mean through circumstances in our life. Remember, God's the one that's in control of the kingdoms, right? We need to be aware of the fact that nothing in your life just happens. Somebody says, oh, well, and this is where we get in trouble so many times. We'll be sinning against God and something bad will happen, and we will attribute that to just one of those things. Everybody gets sick. Everybody has problems. And and we just totally rule out of our mind the possibility that just maybe this has happened to me because I'm not in the will of God. And I'm telling you folks, regardless, regardless of what the affliction is that you're going through, regardless of what the difficulty is, the first question you need to ask yourself is not, Who can recommend a good doctor? It's not what pill can I take that will help me through it. The very first question we need to ask is to ask God, is there anything in my life that's displeasing to you that might be bringing this on and you're doing this or allowing this to get my attention? 
Because God's in control of our circumstances. He causes or He allows everything that happens to us. The good and the bad and the ugly. God's in charge of all of it. And nothing ever happens by accident. God's the one that is in control. And we need to be careful lest in the hour of sinful darkness in our life that we ignore the warnings of God and His sword of judgment fall upon our neck. Every step we take, every breath we take, every moment we live outside the will of God, it's as though we are playing Russian roulette with our life. Back many years ago, I knew a man real well who owned a... I won't mention the name of the establishment or his name because we take record everything here. But uh, he owned uh, owned a bar downtown Springfield, Missouri. And, and I, I knew him well. He had been a neighbor of a friend of mine. I got to know him there, and I'd been in that bar uh, over and over and over again and knew him well. And one night... Uh, one night this fellow got to playing Russian roulette. Some friends right there at the bar, the same bar where I had sat and drank. Put a bullet in the chamber, spun the chamber. They made some bets. Pulled the trigger, put, put his temple, pulled the trigger, nothing happened. Raked in the money. Until finally... He blew his brains out right there on that bar playing Russian roulette. Now, every single one of us here this morning would say that is just about as stupid as you can get. Let me tell you, folks, that is not nearly so stupid as you presuming on God. As you saying to yourself, I know what I am doing is wrong, but... Oh, God is a God of grace, and He's going to be merciful to me. That's the worst attitude you could have. To presume in the Old Testament, that was the one sin for which there was no sacrifice, the sin of presumption. And when you and I knowingly violate God's standard, and by the way, when we think about sin... We need to understand what sin is. It's the transgression of the law. Sin is anything that's contrary to the will of God. It might be a sin of commission or a sin of omission. It might have to do with your actions, what you do. It might have to do with the absences, the things you don't do that you ought to do. It might have to do with your attitude. And all of those are serious matters with God. And for us to go on, listen, I'm talking to even Christians now, for us to go on knowing that what we're doing is contrary to the will of God and thinking that we're going to get by with it without any, without any, without any pain being involved at all, we're just kidding ourselves. Be sure your sin will find you out. And if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Christ, you're playing Russian roulette with your soul. I mean, put your hand on your heart. Can you feel it beating? If you can't, raise your other hand and we'll call an ambulance. But you know, you know what your heart's doing? It's beating a death march 
to the grave right now. It's appointed that a man wants to die. And your heart is beating a death march toward the grave. And you never know when it's going to take its last beat. And you'll breathe your last breath. And you'll go out into eternity without Christ. God's speaking to you this morning. Don't turn a deaf ear. Don't be like the foolish king who supposed that he could sin and get by with it. Somebody said years and years ago, sin will cost you more than you want to pay. It'll take you further than you want to go, and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it sure will. And for the unbeliever, that's eternal separation from God. God's speaking. Are you listening? The only one solution for man's problems, and that's repentance. To repent, turn to the Lord in an attitude of faith, and trust Him to do what He promised. Would you do that this morning while we stand together, Father? I pray this morning that, that You'll speak to each and every one of us here today, but, but especially for those that are strangers to Your saving grace, those that live day after day without any hope of heaven in their heart, those, of, those that do not know beyond any shadow of a doubt that they'd go to heaven if they died. God, I pray you'll just break through that old, cold, hard, stony heart within them. Melt their heart by your Spirit and use your Word this morning to enlighten their mind and, and that the Spirit might draw them unto the Lord Jesus Christ that they might be saved today. For those of us that have been saved but not living in Your will, I just pray this morning that You'll help us to repent of our sin before it's too late and we pay a price that we really don't want to pay. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.